From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The most sensitive data to be obtained by hackers in Australian history has been published. A Russian network of hackers put the private medical data of Australians online, including records of the termination of pregnancies and people's drug and alcohol treatment. The data was obtained in an attack on Medibank, and the vulnerability of the health insurer has now convinced the government to unleash new capabilities against hackers around the world. Today, senior reporter for the Saturday paper, Rick Morton on the powers our intelligence agencies have been building up and how they plan on using them. It's Monday, November 21. Rick, we know that Medibank, which is the private health insurer, was hacked a few weeks ago now and the data of hundreds of thousands of people was stolen. But what do we know about how that actually happened? That's a really good question because... There hasn't been a lot of information put into the public realm, just a few hints here and there, but we are beginning to learn a bit more about it and and I've managed to get my hands on a few details about how it was pulled off and it was really, unfortunately, it was really simple. It turns out these hackers found the logging credentials for a single support desk worker at the health insurer and this is the really important part, that support desk worker did not have two-factor authentication on their account, which is basically, you know, when you log into your email and it sends a text with a code to your mobile phone or it sends an email to another email backup account that you have to verify it's you, that's two-factor authentication. It's considered the bare minimum in terms of security. And this account worker didn't have that. Now, the hackers used that login detail to gain access to virtually the entire contents of Medibank's business. And once inside, you know, they got really lucky. They were able to go just hang out basically for weeks without being noticed and spent the entire time ripping out sensitive data by the gigabyte. I think it was 200 gigabytes in the end that they managed to collect. Now, by the 12th of October, officers at the Australian Signals Directorate, which is ASD, which is kind of the intelligence division that monitors or is in charge of digital surveillance signals, they were noticing some pretty suspicious cyber activity. And they actually got in touch with the company at 1.20pm that afternoon on the 12th of October. And at the same time, Medibank staff were watching the same unusual activity and they were kind of trying to wonder what to make of it. And then, of course, when the Australian Signals Directorate got in touch, they realised something was on. And the next day, Medibank CEO David Kotskar released a statement to the Stock Exchange acknowledging that an intrusion had happened, but at this point they didn't think anything had been taken. And, of course, that changed (laughs) six days later when, I'm going to say, it became apparent the data was copied because the hackers got in touch with a sample of some of that data and said, hey, we've got some of this stuff, you might want to pay us some money to make it go away. And of course, that was the beginning of a situation that just seemed to get worse and worse over the next few weeks as the size and scale of this problem grew. Right. Okay. So it sounds like this was quite sophisticated, Rick. Hackers were actually inside the Medibank system for a matter of weeks, taking whatever information they could get. So as we learn more about that, about how it happened, what are we learning about who was behind it? Yeah, so this is quite interesting in that the Australian Federal Police on the 11th of November, Commissioner Rhys Kershaw just came out, fronted the media and actually said, we found you, we know who you are. To the criminals, you know, we know who you are. We believe that those responsible for the breach are in Russia. Are in Russia. Our intelligence points to a group of loosely affiliated cyber criminals 
who are likely responsible... This is an important definition. Cybercriminals who are likely responsible for past significant breaches in countries across the world. These cybercriminals are operating like a business with affiliates and associates who are supporting the business. Almost like investors in a way is how these people operate. So they get protection and investment from others and then they their business is to try and extort money from companies and that's exactly what they did with Medibank. They demanded a $15 million ransom, which I'm going to say thankfully Medibank has refused to pay, although it's a really thorny issue. What happens then when Medibank refused to pay the ransom? This is a decision that's consistent with the government policy on ransomware and this is why we've made the decision to not pay this ransom. When did you get that ransom? And this is why it's thorny, because the hackers are legit, they're proper criminals, and they began to leak the data. Good morning. We begin with breaking news. A huge development in the Medibank hacking scandal. Criminals have begun posting stolen data to the dark web, including customers' intensely personal and private information. It has now been confirmed... Clinical records which reveal, you know, people who may have had pregnancy terminations or sought drug and alcohol treatment for substance abuse or mental health treatment, which, of course, none of these things are bad, but of course they're socially stigmatised. It would be so distressing knowing that that is out there in the system. And that Medibank have basically thrown up their hands and also said in this statement um, that uh, we expect the criminals to continue to release files on the dark web. Of course, remember, they have access to nine million customers. Uh, We will continue to work around the clock. Uh, The hackers knew exactly what they were doing. They were going for the most, for want of a better term, the juiciest stuff. And the point is that it's people's private information, right? 100%. And, like, the most private stuff you could possibly think of. You know, we're talking medical advice and procedures and consultations, which people sometimes don't share with their significant other. And already the Medibank hackers established themselves as way more serious than the Optus hacker singular, I'm pretty sure, because in that case, in Optus' case, we think it's a kid, a teenager, managed to get a hold of 10 million customer records, like uh, names, addresses, passport numbers, driver's license numbers, stuff like that. And of course, they leaked a tiny fraction of that onto the dark web and then (laughs) suddenly released an apology saying, sorry, there's too much attention. No, I'm not going to do anything. Everything's safe. I've deleted the data. And I was having a chat to a former ASD analyst, and he's the author of an info security publication called Seriously Risky Business, Tom Uran. He was saying that Medibank got really unlucky because Optus got a newbie, that behaviour, leaking the data and then all of a sudden changed their mind. It doesn't exactly scream hard and criminal. And that's totally different from what hit Medibank. You know, to use Tom Uran's words, they're being real assholes. They're being methodical, deliberate, and they're making good on their threats, which is to release bits and pieces of data every time that Medibank refuses to pay their ransom. And we know that they have if not the protection of the state of Russia, then certainly Russia is turning a blind eye to the criminal elements. Okay, so what does that mean for Australian police, Rick? I mean, what can the AFP really do to try and take action against foreign hacking syndicates? Well, I mean, they're still obliged to try, right? And which is what Commissioner Rhys Kershaw from the AFP was on about, you know, earlier this month when he was saying that the AFP is working with the Australian Interpol, National Central Bureau, and they have a direct line to the, the National Central Bureau in Moscow, which is also Interpol. But Kershaw is kind of hinting that it's likely that nothing will come of this because Russia is not exactly being cooperative. 
with any Western agency lately. But this is where things get really fascinating because there are other options and we're going to have to avail ourselves of them. Now, because this hacker Medibank is changing the way Australia will respond to hacking attacks, it has to. So we've been testing these little powers and hoarding these capabilities, but we haven't really done much with it. And then, of course, Medibank gets hacked. They refuse to pay. The hackers leak the most sensitive data we've ever had leaked in Australian history. And I don't know that the hackers in Russia counted on their swindle being the one thing that fundamentally rewrote the rules of engagement for Australian authorities, or certainly ended up being the tipping point for a major shift in the way we pursue these criminals. We'll be back in a moment. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rick, we now know that the Medibank hackers, they're based in Russia and it sounds like as a result of what they've done, things could really change in Australia in terms of the way that we attempt to police cybercrime. So tell me about what's on the table. So just to show you how fast things have been moving, on the Saturday after the AFP released their assessment of the attackers to the public, the Minister for Cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, announced one of the biggest shake-ups in the operating model of the Australian Signals Directorate and the AFP, and it's essentially this cross-agency permanent standing force of 100 people whose entire job it is going to be to hunt down cybercriminals around the world. This is a new operation, a permanent standing force of 100 of the best Uh, most capable cyber experts in this country that will be undertaking this task for for the first time, offensively attacking these people, David. So this is not a model of policing where we wait for a crime to be committed and then try to understand who it is and do something to the people who are responsible. We are offensively going to find these people, hunt them down and debilitate them before they can attack our country. What's your expectation? Now, the ASD Director-General Rachel Noble told Senate Estimates on the 8th of November, just a few days before this was announced, so it's been percolating, uh, that the organisation, which still sits in the defence portfolio, it's not really a military organisation anymore, but it is still accountable to defence, it does undertake and has undertaken operations to disrupt cyber criminals who have attacked Australia in the last 18 months. In cyberspace, it's an important deterrence and it is an important tool that we operationalise often against cyber criminals. And given the old reporting lines, these must be authorised by the Defence Minister, which is now Richard Miles. And just to go back to some of that history, when Dan Tien had the cybersecurity portfolio responsibility in 2017, he cleared the way for the ASD to use its offensive cyber capabilities to take the fight against these criminals offshore. What has changed since then is the scale and the permanency now of this approach. Previously, it was an ad hoc kind of, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Now we've got an entire task force, essentially, of 100 people. And this has been on Labor's mind for a little while now. 
Private Members' Business, Notice Number 2, Ransomware Payments Bill 2021. At least since June last year, when the then cybersecurity spokesperson, Tim Watts, told the parliament, there is an urgent need for this bill. The Australian Cybersecurity Centre has labelled ransomware the, quote, highest cyber threat facing Australian business. Indeed, it's more than just a threat to business. Ransomware is a significant national security threat in its own right. Ransomware is a type of cyber attack. It's particularly used to extort companies or to get them to pay money to get their data back. Watts was essentially foreshadowing what is now this policy, which he said the Signals Directorate should draw up a list of the top 10 ransomware groups that have threatened Australia and then set about disrupting their command and control infrastructure, their communications platforms and their finances. And it doesn't take a hindsight to figure out that the Medibank hackers just made the very top of that list. You know, the old way that the Directorate would describe its mission is to reveal their secrets, protect our own. But this is a new third thing. You could probably call it mess with other people to make their lives more difficult. It's probably the politest way you can say that. And done right, the hope is that this will deter criminal activity by breaking systems and networks of known criminals or hacking groups. It gives us an extra option because traditionally you'd have to go to our domestic law enforcement who would police crimes within, for example, Australia. And then if something was happening overseas, that law enforcement agency would have to go to the overseas agency and then they'd have to work police to police. So this approach is breaking new ground and raises really interesting ethical and legal questions. You know, these are big strategic decisions for any Australian government to make. And, you know, it's got to consider the consequences now of how it deploys those powers. Well, let's talk a bit about that, Rick, about the ethical and legal questions that arise, because what we're talking about here is trying to prevent a crime before it's been committed. And I think that opens up a lot of questions about whether that's possible to begin with, also whether it's desirable and and if this is a path that we should be going down. Do you know, it's a really interesting question. How do you stop a criminal group from attacking you if they haven't committed the crime yet? It sounded on its surface a little bit minority report. It's like thought crimes almost. But the reality is ethical hackers, authorities around the world, they already know who the major criminal groups are. The consideration then becomes, well, what is the rationale? And, you know, in a military sense, to use force, there has to be a a trigger point i.e. someone who's used force against you before, and your response has to be proportional. And Uren was saying that espionage does fall under the use of force considerations rather than, you know, a policing criminal matter. But what we're talking about here is not killing people. We're not sending people to jail. We're not arresting people extrajudicially. We're talking about, he said, disrupting their phone or their chat messages or wiping their computer hard drives or something like that. So in that sense, it's inconsequential. This is exactly the same situation, but in a digital sense, as the Somali pirates who were attacking container ships off the coast of Somalia. It's not a terrorist offence. They were criminals, they were trying to steal money, and they were disrupting commercial operations. And eventually the American military sent the Navy in. It wasn't considered to be a military operation in the strictest sense. It wasn't declaring war on Somalia because the pirates were criminals and they were not supported by the state. So it's a very similar vibe. So there's no legal institution as far as we're aware that would stop this from happening. It's just, you know, how much of the consequences is uh, any particular politician willing to bear if something were to become public and it's just not likely to happen. Okay, so Rick, as this happens, as the Australian government expands its abilities to 
counterattack against cyber criminals to try and, and make it a more painful proposition for them to target Australians in the future. The people who've already lost their privacy, have already had their intimate details taken and, and leaked online, there isn't really anything that can be done to fix that to help them now, is there? No. No, there's not. I wish there was a better answer to that because there's not. If you're a health insurer, then yeah, you've got to collect details about people who pay your insurance and people who make claims for certain procedures. There's no way around that. But there should be greater regulation about how that data is controlled, how long it is kept for, and you know how secure it is. Now, there's other arguments about other companies, real estate agents, for example, about how much data they take on you for a rental application. That's just crazy and doesn't need to happen. Certainly doesn't need to be kept for any particular time. So there's, there's these other broader questions, but none of it helps people who've had their stuff taken to Medibank. None of it makes you feel better. And there's nothing at this point in time to lend anyone a sense of security about the next couple of years because I think we're about to see a lot more attacks like this that are successful and that do cause this kind of damage. Rick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ruby. Always a pleasure. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has returned from a summit tour after reportedly conducting a constructive meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Albanese has said the meeting was much more positive than was anticipated, though at this time trade sanctions remain in place. And the FIFA World Cup has begun today in Qatar. The build-up to the tournament has been overshadowed by a number of controversies, including allegations of human rights violations and migrant worker deaths. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.